Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be This Advent season is, of course, about the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ to his people. Uh, we uh, see as one of the central figures in the Advent readings, and we'll see today, uh, John the Baptist. These words, of course, are spoken uh, in the Gospels, quoted in the Gospels, uh, regarding John the Baptist and his mission in Israel. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming to his people, and John the Baptist is called to go and prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Messiah. For Israel, uh, the coming of the, of the Messiah meant repentance. If uh, Israel's Messiah is coming, then they need to be prepared for his coming by repenting of their sins, by uh, living in righteousness, by making straight paths for the Lord. The Lord comes to us, uh, the Lord comes to us as we worship him, the Lord comes to us uh, each day as we uh, fellowship with him, the Lord will come to us as we confess each Lord's Day uh, once again to judge the living and the dead. And our call is the same call that's given to Israel, to prepare the way of the Lord, to make level paths. How are we to make level paths for the Lord? Well, one of the primary ways is to uh, knock down any obstacle in our hearts or in our lives that would keep us from the Lord, to repent, to repent of our sins, uh, to uh, clear the way for fellowship with God. And so our call this morning is to repent of our sins so that we are prepared in our hearts to fellowship with the Lord. Please kneel as we confess our sins together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. We've been in the first couple chapters of John, the last few times I've been with you. Uh, last week, or last month rather, we were in uh, John 2, in the first section of John 2, when Jesus performs his first sign, turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Jesus there, we were told, uh, began uh, his ministry by, uh, with this first sign, and the purpose of that sign was uh, to manifest his glory among the people of Israel and among his disciples. And the result, John tells us, uh, was the bringing about of his disciples' faith in him. This first sign sets the tone for the rest of Jesus' ministry in John. 
Remember, at Cana, Jesus signals that he's bringing about the purification of the law. He's bringing about the purification that the law uh, was, was calling for, the purification of the Torah. And he's now calling Israel to feast with Yahweh. Jesus shows that it's in himself that this purification is accomplished and given, and that he himself is both hosting the feast and giving himself as the f- true food and drink. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus focuses this theme in on the temple. Israel is Yahweh's covenant people, the people who enjoy God's special covenant presence. The Lord tells his people in Exodus 6, I will, make you, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. It's Israel's uh, special lot to be in this covenantal relationship with God in which God is, is present to them in a particular way that he's not to the rest of the world. And the temple is the central and uh, climactic sign of God's presence for Israel. The temple is where God's uh, presence dwells, where they, uh, where they look to pray, where they bring their sacrifices. The temple is the climactic sign of God's presence with his people in, in the life of Israel. It's the place where he places his name, the place his name dwells. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, we read, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your ascension offerings and your peace offerings, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to Yahweh. So the the expectation is that the people are going to come into the promised land, and when they're settled, when God settles them in the land, God is going to, uh, finally, after settling his people, find a place where his name will dwell. And in this place where his name will dwell, uh, that's where they're, where they're to come to bring these offerings, to bring their offerings and their prayers and their vows before the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicates the temple, he asks God to hear when the people pray toward this place. And that's, the, uh, that's the emphasis that Solomon keeps coming to, when the, the people are going to pray towards this place and the Uh, When they uh, pray for help, for delivery, they're going to pray towards this temple. Uh, When they pray for forgiveness, they're going to look towards this temple. He asks God to hear when they pray toward the temple, to deliver justice and forgiveness when Israel comes to God's presence in the temple. Solomon says the temple, too, is not, not just for Israel. When a foreigner comes, Solomon says, when a foreigner comes and prays toward the temple, God will hear and act in order This is in Isaiah uh, 56, we read, In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. I'm sorry, that was 1 Kings. And then Isaiah describes the temple as a house of prayer for all nations. So the temple is being dedicated as the central uh, location for God's presence among his people, the place where they're to look, where they're to to pray, uh, and God is going to act and to deliver them from that place. But it's not just for Israel. Remember, Israel is called out, Uh, to be God's covenant people, to follow uh, God's uh, law, to be formed by the Torah. Uh, But they're not called out just for their own sake. God tells Abraham that his his family will be raised up to be a blessing for all the nations. The temple, too, is not just there for Israel. It's, of course, Israel's special place of worship and Israel's uh, special place where God's covenant presence dwells. But it's there for the nations as well. It's there for uh, for the sake of the Gentiles, too. Isaiah tells us it's a house of prayer for all nations. It's the first international house of prayer. Uh, the, the temple is, is God's effectual covenant sign to be with 
and for his people, and to fulfill his promise to bless the nations in them. John tells us of a temple cleansing here at the beginning of Jesus, of the account of Jesus' ministry. In the Synoptic Gospels, we read of Jesus coming in and uh, doing this a similar action, driving out the money changers. Uh, at the end of his ministry, right before leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and clears out the temple. Well, here John tells us of uh, Jesus coming in and driving out the money changers as the second of Jesus' signs the beginning, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There's a lot of uh, confusion about this. In- interpreters have a lot of uh, difficulty figuring out what, what this discrepancy, apparent discrepancy, means. Uh, is this just a, another example of, of contradiction in the Gospels? Or some, some more faithful uh, interpreters will see this as John's uh, dechronologizing the events of Jesus' ministry. He's pulling an event from uh, later in Jesus' ministry and then telling us about it in the beginning to kind of set the tone. Well, those are interesting uh, uh, ideas to look at, but it, it seems to that we can just take it at face value that Jesus, uh, as John tells us, goes into the temple and uh, cleanses the temple, drives out the money changers, and declares coming uh, judgment on the temple at the beginning of his ministry. And then when we read the Synoptic Gospels, we can say, okay, and then apparently he does it again at the end. Uh, there's, there doesn't seem to be any good reason to doubt that this is something that Jesus did twice. And in fact, there's, there's good reason to believe that that is the case. There's a precedent for, uh, for this, this kind of house visit, this kind of uh, visit to, to an unclean house and uh, inspecting and then coming again for judgment. Uh, Jesus' two temple cleansings uh, could be described as his inspections uh, and then finally coming again in judgment in the year AD 70. And this double inspection would correspond uh, with the instruction for inspecting a, a leprous house in Leviticus 14. Uh, Leviticus 14 talks about uh, the uncleanness of leprosy and how, to, how someone with leprosy would go about uh, becoming clean again. And uh, it's apparent from Leviticus 14 that the kind of leprosy that's being described there isn't the same disease that we know as leprosy today because it's uh, the, the disease known as Hansen's disease today because in Leviticus 14, if someone has this affliction, maybe a better way to translate it than leprosy, if someone has this affliction on their skin, but eventually it ends up covering their whole skin, where their whole skin is covered in, in white, then the priest declares them clean. If, if we knew someone with leprosy today, and they eventually their whole skin was covered with it, we wouldn't say, oh, you're good, you know, it's, it's all over, don't worry. No, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of affliction, and the, the disease the uncleanness is more of a, a theological uncleanness uh, that goes along with the uh, themes of, of, Le- of Leviticus. But in Leviticus 14, there isn't just leprosy on the skin, there's leprosy in the house as well. In the second part of that chapter, a house can contract leprosy, and it's probably a, a kind of mold that would grow on the walls. But a, a house that's growing this sort of affliction in Israel is unclean and it needs an inspection. And what the priest would do would come in and inspect the house to determine it if it wasn't, in fact, unclean. If it was unclean, his instruction was to shut up the house for seven days. And then after seven days, he would come again and inspect it. And after seven days, if it was, if it was all clear, if the affliction uh, was gone, 
uh, was cleansed, then, then it was clean. And they would, uh, people would return to the house and use it once again. But if not, if, it was, if the affliction persisted, then uh, what would happen to the house? It would, it would be destroyed. And we're told that every stone would be removed, would be taken down from, from another and taken outside the city to an unclean place. That, that idea of every stone being removed uh, reminds us, or should remind us now, of uh, Jesus' prediction for uh, Jesus' prophecy of judgment that's coming on the temple. What's Jesus doing here? If, if we take this at face value, that Jesus comes to the temple in John at the beginning of his ministry, and then in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he comes again at the end to inspect it. Well, Jesus is doing this the same kind of uh, leprous house inspection, except this time it's not just any house, it's God's house. It's the, the temple. The temple in Jesus' day had become unclean, had become unclean with the sins of Israel. Jesus comes in to inspect it and finds this uncleanness, this unfaithfulness in Israel, and he returns again at the end of his ministry to, to inspect it again, uh, still finds Israel unfaithful, unclean, and then re- returns again in AD 70 uh, for judgment, when every stone is, is removed, when the temple is finally judged. But what John emphasizes for us here is the climactic fulfillment of God's covenant, pro- uh, God's covenant presence now in Jesus' own body. Uh, Jesus comes to the temple and he declares that it's unclean, that it's coming to an end. But we see that God's, God's presence with his people is not coming to an end because Jesus is telling us that God is present with his people now in his son, in Jesus. So what is Jesus doing in this temple clearing, in this temple cleansing? And how is Jesus present with his people now? First of all, what's, what's happening in this temple cleansing? Well, Jesus comes into the temple and he disrupts the flow of the liturgy for, uh, for a good while, maybe for an hour or so. That's, and it's not just something that's happening off in the corner where uh, there's someone off in the corner you know, tipping over tables and the rest of the uh, temple service is going on as usual. Jesus disrupts the whole flow of the, of the service. Jesus disrupts the whole uh, liturgy of the temple and he does so uh, leading up to Passover. This is one of the major times of the uh, life of the temple. He comes in, he finds those who are selling oxen and sheep and the money changers, and he, he takes the time to make a whip. That's, that's something that, uh, that I think we can read over too quickly. Jesus, Jesus comes in here, and this is a very deliberate kind of action. He comes in, takes a look, and then you know, maybe goes off to the side somewhere and sits down and fashions a whip. Uh, you know, it's, be, it's interesting to think about what's, what's going through Jesus' head as he sits there and, and makes a whip, or, or what would be going through people's heads if they walk by and see someone sitting there in the temple just you know, tying a whip together, and kind of uh, anticipation building. Well, Jesus comes in, he makes a whip, and he disrupts the whole flow of the temple. He, he stops the temple service uh, for a while. Jesus is doing so in order to signal that, uh, that coming very soon is... A, a total end of the temple service. Jesus disrupts the flow of the temple liturgy in order to show that this whole thing is coming to an end. This whole thing is, is uh, nearing its time up. The animals that are named and driven out are among the animals prescribed for the, uh, for the sacrifices, for the near bringings in Leviticus. These sacrificial animals were to bring the worshiper, to bring Israel, 
uh, closer, nearer to God by ascension. Uh, that's the language that's used throughout Leviticus uh, is that of near bringing. The uh, literal translation of a sacrifice would be a, a near bringing. You come with your, your animal is your near bringing because it's bringing you uh, by proxy to God. It's bringing you close in fellowship to God. And the language that's used throughout Leviticus as well is that of going up. Uh, the near bringing uh, ascends your, uh, ascends, you ascend through that near bringing, through that ascension sacrifice to God. Uh, you're ascending into God's presence. Uh, the, the smoke of the uh, burnt offering rising up symbolizes the ascension of the people's prayers, but also of the people themselves, where uh, Israel is ascending into God's presence in the sacrifice. Well, Jesus is disrupting the flow of this sacrificial system, but now in Jesus, God, is, God himself is descending. No longer is, is it just the people ascending into God's presence, but God himself has come down. God has come down to be near and among his people. The Old Covenant sacrificial system was the, was the shadow, and now the reality is here in Jesus. And so it's time for the shadows to pass away. When Jesus comes to uh, the temple, he signals it's, that it's coming to an end. The whole system is coming to an end. The temple is is meant to point ahead to God finally coming to be among his people, for uh, God coming to be with his people in person. And now that, the sh- now that the reality has come, it's time for the shadows to pass away. But of course, as we see throughout the Gospels, the people of Israel want to cling to the temple system, want to cling to the shadows. Uh, this, the whole point of the Torah, the whole point of the sacrificial system, was to point ahead to when God would come in person, to be with his people. But the, the people of Israel were blind to this. They didn't see it when God finally came. We have a, uh, we have a dog at our, at our house, and uh, he's, he's a great dog, and you know, we love him, but he's not always the brightest dog. But one thing I, that I think is probably just common to dogs is, you know, I'll, I'll give him, if I give him a treat or give him scraps, and he doesn't see me, toss it to him. I, you know, I try to point to where it is. If, if you have dogs, you know what dogs do when you, you know, you know if, if you point to a treat for a dog, what does the dog do? Does it Follow your finger and, and find where the tree is. He just obsesses over my hand. You know, if I'm pointing, he just looks at my finger and, and tries to figure out what I'm what I'm doing. You know, if we're pointing pointing to something, but he doesn't get it, and he's obsessed with the hand I'm using to point. What's well, in a similar way? God uses the the temple to point ahead to His coming in the person of His Son. But Israel becomes fixated on the temple. They don't see what's being pointed to. They don't see the uh, the whole purpose of the temple is to foreshadow the coming of God in the person of his son. They're fixated on the temple, and they're, uh, so any, any perceived threat to the temple is a threat to Israel's whole identity, and a threat to uh, what they see as God's, the way that God is relating to them. God relates to them in the temple, and so any, any, anything else, any uh, judgment on the temple, is a, uh, a threat on the way that they relate to God, the way that God relates to them. But Jesus is coming here to point, uh, to, to show them that the temple is coming to an end because the reality has come in him. Jesus' action, what he's, what he's signaling, uh, seems to be uh, understood at least in some way by the people because they ask for a sign. Jesus drives out the, uh, the money changers and, they, uh, and says, uh, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? 
Jesus is coming to signal the end of the temple, to signal that he is coming, uh, that Yahweh is coming in, in himself. And so the people, uh, you know, rightly in some sense, realize that not, not just anybody can come and do this. This, is, this requires a certain degree of authority. Uh, so what sign is Jesus going to give them, they ask. And Jesus ratchets it up here. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews, hearing that, of course, uh, hear it in, in a very literal way. Jesus is standing in the temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up again in three days? The, he is coming to bring about the end of the temple system, and so, yes, he is talking about destroying the, the temple. This, the temple that he's standing in, the temple they're all in, is going to come to an end. It's going to be destroyed. But what is the temple ultimately that he's talking about? What is going to be raised up in three days? Well, John tells us that it's the, the temple that he's speaking of is the temple of his body. But this, this understanding wasn't brought to his hearers, his, his disciples, until, until Jesus isn't with them anymore, until the, the Holy Spirit comes and opens their eyes. He's taking on the, Jesus is taking on the role of Yahweh, coming to his people, because, of course, Jesus is Yahweh in person, coming to his people. But in Zechariah 14, we read, There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of Yahweh of hosts on that day, uh, when Jerusalem is cleansed, all traitors will be driven out. Uh, the the uh, commerce in the temple, of course, wasn't itself uh, sinful or wicked. Uh, Jesus wasn't coming out to drive these people out because it was wrong to sell these animals. You know, people would come to the temple, and uh, if they came from a, a from a far away, they would just bring money to buy an animal. Because you know, if you bring a sheep from you know from Galilee or from some uh, distance, it might. It might get hurt on the way. It might, you know, a wolf might attack it, or it might uh, break its leg. And, and then what do you do? Your your sacrifice isn't clean anymore, isn't pure anymore. Uh, people would come to the temple, and, and it was a necessity. And God allowed for this in the Torah for for them to buy their their sacrifice, to buy their sacrificial animal. But what we see in Jesus' day is that they've uh, the people have the uh, leaders of the temple have moved this commerce into the court of the Gentiles. Jesus emphasizes elsewhere. Uh, in, the, in the Synoptic Gospels, that uh, this is to be a house of prayer for all nations. But they've, they've uh, driven out the, the Gentiles from the court uh, that was given for them uh, with this commerce. And not only that, but the, uh, the way that they were engaging in this commerce was oppressing the poor in Israel, was, was uh, ripping off the poor, ripping off the people who, who really needed this service. Jesus comes to drive out these people who are profiting off of Israel, who are oppressing the people. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant, spoken of in Malachi 3 that we read this morning. Who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? Uh, Jesus comes as the messenger of God's covenant, and he comes in judgment. He comes to refine and purify Israel. Jesus comes to signal uh, that the temple's time is up, that the uh, temple system is coming to an end. But as we said, he doesn't come to declare that God is abandoning his people, but rather to show that God has come finally to be with his people in himself. When the Jews ask for the sign, as we saw, Jesus offers uh, the uh, sign of the destruction and resurrection of the temple of his body. It's important to note, as we've seen, that uh, Jesus is, is ambiguous in some way, and deliberately so. The temple he refers to is his own body, 
But his disciples didn't realize this until after the resurrection. Uh, Jesus knows that his disciples aren't going to understand what he's talking about. Uh, In in uh, chapter 14 of John, we read uh, Jesus telling of the the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is speaking in in terms that the people are, are not yet going to understand because he's not yet fully revealed himself. Just as we saw uh, a few weeks ago in, in, uh, at the wedding at Cana, Jesus is manifesting his glory, but his, the fullness of his glorification doesn't happen until he's lifted up in glory on the cross. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit when Jesus is lifted up to open the eyes of his people, to open the eyes of, specifically in this case, the disciples, to understand Jesus' words. In chapter 16, starting in verse 12, we read, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus is speaking in ambiguous terms, but he knows the the Spirit is coming, and the ministry of the Spirit is to open our eyes, to open our, our minds to understand the work of Christ. The efficacy of the, the Holy Spirit applies, uh, firstly, to the understanding, understanding the life of Jesus, understanding what the gospel of Jesus Christ means. Jesus' words and actions are meant to convey greater meaning uh, for the present church than is immediately understood for his disciples. Jesus is telling his people that the true temple is going to continue in his own body. Jesus' body in scripture is, des- is described in, you could say, three, three dimensions. Jesus' body in the, in the New Testament is, is threefold. First we have uh, what's, what's uh, being referred to most specifically here, the historical body of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' physical body, his incarnate body, that, uh, the body that was born of Mary. Uh, Jesus is, uh, sorry, John has told us already in, in chapter 1, verse 14, that the incarnate Son is God's uh, tabernacle presence, his temple presence among his people, that Jesus is coming in flesh to manifest God's presence. Jesus' historical, physical body is manifesting the presence of God with his people. Jesus, uh, throughout his ministry, shows that the the true temple now is is his own body. Jesus goes into the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and then through the rest of his ministry, he's offering in in his ministry what's normally given in the temple. Think of what does Israel go to the temple for? They go there for cleansing. They go there for forgiveness. Uh, They go to the temple for... Uh, uh, to be purified, to be cleansed as God's people. But what does Jesus do in his earthly ministry? He, uh, he meets those who are in sin, and does he tell them, uh, pray to the temple, or you know, pray towards the temple, or, or bring your, uh, your offering, your morning and evening offering to the temple, and you'll be forgiven. No, Jesus forgives them right on the spot. Uh, you would go to the temple and bring your sacrifice, and, and there would be a, a feast in the peace offering. There would be the, a portion that the worshiper could uh, uh, could enjoy with God. You could feast with God at the temple in the peace, in the peace offering. Well, in Jesus' ministry, he, he gives forgiveness, he gives cleansing, and he gives the feast right there in his own presence, right there with it, in himself. Jesus comes to give the gifts of the temple. Jesus comes to bring God's temple presence in his own physical, historical body. Jesus' body also... Uh, 
the first uh, dimension of Jesus' body is the, uh, the historical, physical body. The New Testament also talks about the, the communal, the corporate body of Christ. We are the body of Christ, Paul tells us. Uh, it's one of the main emphases of, of Paul's letters is that we, the church, are the body of Christ. Jesus' uh, physical, historical body, of course, is a continuing reality. Jesus was raised bodily. Uh, he is still bodily seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, but now we fellowship in the body of Christ by being joined to that body. The church is the body of Christ. The Spirit led the disciples to understand the church as the body of Christ, the new temple. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, speaking of uh, the church's Eucharistic life, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of, of the living God. Sorry, this isn't in reference to the Eucharist, but in, in reference to, um, to eating uh, food sacrificed to idols. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So these are words that were used originally for the God's temple, uh, God's uh, physical temple with his people in Israel. And now Paul's telling us this has continued, this reality has continued uh, in the body of Christ that is the church, the communal body of Christ. We are the temple of the living God, Paul says. Then in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a, whole, a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are, the church is the, the dwelling place. That's what the temple always was. The, we are the dwelling place now for the Spirit of God. And that's the life, the historical life of the church, Paul tells us, is that we are being built up into the body of Christ. We are being built up as God's true temple. Peter tells us the same thing in uh, 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the, the living stone that's been rejected. Uh, we are being incorporated into him, into his body as uh, living stones as well, into a spiritual house in which we offer pure sacrifices in Christ. We are the new temple. God's temple presence continues in us. And then within that true temple, within that uh, corporate body of Christ, we share uh, in the body of Christ as he gives himself to us each Lord's Day, as we come to fellowship uh, with one another around the Lord's table. The Eucharistic body of Christ is given to us to share in each week. Through the Spirit, we participate in the body and blood of Jesus at the table. Jesus assures us that in, in this bread and wine, he gives himself, uh, as we've seen, as we've talked about before when we were in John 6. Of course, this isn't to say that there's some mystical transformation of the elements, but rather that we are the body of Christ and God's spirit feeds us. God's spirit feeds us as we come together around the Lord's table. He is truly feeding his people 
the body and blood of his son. It's our, our true spiritual food and spiritual drink. We're being united together with Christ and renewed as his body each week. So Jesus' temple presence is given to his people in his physical, historical body. He goes throughout Israel uh, giving the gifts of the temple to his people. Uh, he uh, gives his temple presence to us today as his body. We are, the, we are the temple of Christ. God's spirit, God's glory is dwelling within us. And God gives, his, gives himself to us as he's present uh, at the Lord's table, as we fellowship with him as his body. We are truly one body in Jesus, and sharing together in this meal as we fellowship truly forms us together as one. That's why table fellowship is such a big theme in the, uh, in the epistles and, the, and in Acts. It's so important in the New Testament because it's the unity that we have is, is built around the body of Christ given to us. God's temple presence has come to be with us and his son. What does it mean then to, to be uh, united to Christ and to be the true temple of God? Well, as we, as we saw earlier, the temple had a mission. The temple wasn't just there for Israel's sake. Uh, the temple was there to be a house of prayer uh, for all nations. The temple was there as a, uh, a means for Israel to reach the nations around them. We, we see in, in, uh, in 1 Kings when, when uh, Solomon builds the temple, one of the uh, first things that we see happen is the flocking of Gentiles to come to God's house, to come to, uh, to see the glory of the Lord. Uh, Gentiles come and, and receive bless, the blessing of, of the Lord at the temple. We are God's temple, and that informs our mission. We are God's temple not just so that we can in, enjoy God's presence, enjoy God's uh, grace for our own sake, but rather so that we can receive God's blessings that he gives, God's temple presence blessings, the forgiveness of sins, uh, fellowship, uh, feasting together with God. We receive these gifts that were given at the temple but are now given in the fullness in Jesus so that we can give them out to the world around us. Uh, we receive so that we, can, uh, so that we can give and come again and continue to receive. And the, uh, the process goes on and on. We are to receive God's gifts in his presence in order to distribute God's gifts to the world around us. So God has come to dwell among us in Jesus. Do we believe him? Do we receive him? Uh, this Advent, as we consider God's coming to us, as we consider the ways in which God comes to us, uh, how are we receiving the Lord? Are we making straight the paths of the Lord in our own lives? Are we prepared for the Lord's coming to us as he comes to us uh, in fellowship with one another, as he comes to us through his word and in his sacraments, as he uh, has promised to come to us again on the last day? How are we prepared to receive the Lord? Are we abiding in him? He's formed us, the church, in union with his son into his new temple. Uh, how, are, how are we doing fellowshipping together as God's people? Are we uh, uniting around the Lord's table as one, or, as we, or are we divided? Are we bringing uh, division to God's temple? God has given us the gifts of, uh, that, that were foreshadowed in the temple. God has declared us uh, clean. God's forgiven us. Uh, God has brought us into the feast. How are we doing with receiving this gifts, these gifts? Are we receiving them and holding them in uh, for ourselves, or are we uh, distributing them? Are we sharing these gifts with the world around us, as God calls us to do? Let this be our, our, our meditation throughout Advent. How are we receiving the Lord, and how are we bringing the world in through the invitation to receive the Lord with us?
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your grace to us. We thank you for coming to us, to dwell among us, to make your name dwell with us in the person of your Son. Lord, we thank you that he has given himself, given his body and his blood on the cross to unite us to you so that we can, through you coming to us, we can now ascend into your presence and fellowship with you. Thank you for giving us these gifts, the forgiveness of sins, uh, fellowship with you around your table as we feast with you. Thank you for your coming again that you've promised. We pray that our hearts would be prepared each each day to fellowship with you and that our hearts would be prepared for your coming again the last day. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, into ages of age. Throughout church history, some Christians have turned the Lord's table into a tomb. This way of looking at the Lord's table makes, makes it a place only of self-examination. Instead of enjoying the community that we have in this one loaf and being full of thankfulness. Moreover, when we think of and treat the table as a tomb, it promotes the thinking of the tomb as a sign of defeat and not one of victory. What the tomb represents for us is a sign of victory. No one remains in the tomb. Our mission as we approach the table today is to memorialize the Lord's death in light of the empty tomb. His death for us was a death to bring us joy. We embrace the joy of sins forgiven and life everlasting. The table is for us, it's for our children, those that have been united to the risen Savior and are tasting of his eternal victory. It is for those who are baptized and are under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. So come and see the empty tomb as we eat and drink together. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.